Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see you all. Chapter 32 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, but it certainly is one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis because it is, the, uh, it is an account of God, uh, in effect, God wrestling with Jacob and breaking Jacob of his manipulative, conniving ways. And even more importantly for the whole history of the scriptures, he changes his name to Israel. And so that that's becomes then the basis for the rest of the scriptures for the Jewish people being called the children of Israel. Because Israel is the name, I should say really the new name of Jacob. Because God asks him, as he's wrestling with him at the end, what is your name? And he said to Jacob, and then God says, now your name will be Israel. And Israel means one who strives with God. And of course, for the next several thousand years, that's in effect what the people of Israel are. They strive with God. So that's important. It really is. It's important for understanding the rest of the scriptures and certainly the rest of the life of Jacob. So I just wanted to make sure you, you got that. And the other thing is equally as important. As Jacob is approaching the promised land, he's on the east side of the Jordan River. If you look at the map, you'll see he's coming down from Patamaram. But as he gets closer, he prays, Lord, deliver me, rescue me, protect me. And that same Hebrew word is the word that is used at the end of verse 30. He changes the name of this place, Penuel. I've seen God face to face. My life has been delivered. It's exactly the same Hebrew word. So how does God deliver Jacob? Through this, let's put it in our terms, through this wrestling match, <laughs> where God breaks Jacob and he, he touches his hip and Jacob goes to the Jabbok River and will limp and that I think, although I can't prove it, that for the rest of his life he'll limp. And every time he takes a step, he's reminded of what happened. I, I, I might know the answer to this, but God changed his name to Israel, mm -hmm. and yet we still refer to him as Jacob. There are, anybody else knew that God changed his name? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yes and no. I, I mean, it depends on whom you're talking about. But you will see the scriptures will refer to him, and we'll see it coming up, both as Jacob and Israel. Sometimes in the scriptures that he will be, or uh, that people of Israel, the Jewish people, will be called uh, Jacob's children, or the children of Jacob, also the children of Israel. They're, inter they're now interchangeable. Uh, but that it's extremely important, um, well, for two reasons. One, because of what happens to the character of Jacob, but also because Jacob really illustrates the children of Israel. They will strive with God. They will go through periods of devotion, obedience to him, followed by periods of conniving, manipulating, and, you know, that was so typical of Jacob. And you're going to see it again in chapter 33 as he deals with Esau. So I don't know if that answered your question. So that, 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 but that covenant name, that's really, really important. Why do you say strive with God, Jim? Strive because, That's what I mean. Well, <clears throat> in the sense that sometimes they're not aligned with his will, oh. and other times they are, and, and yet you label both of those un, with the word strive. So. <clears throat> um, it can be both positive and negative, I mean, in, in a sense. Uh, and that is 
the striving with God, that, that term strive, has a sense of passion, activist. You know, rarely is it a passive. They're either passionate and striving in their obedience and, and passionate commitment to the Lord, or they're striving in exactly the opposite, running away from him. And so, I mean, that's, it's, it's a combative word. Uh, it's, it's an active word, not a passive word. And that's the children of Israel. It was Jacob, and that's the children of Israel. So let's, let's look at chapter 33 now. Uh, have that map in front of you that I just gave. Does anybody not have one? Or are there any extras somewhere around? Has everybody got one? All right. Dave, do you want one of these? If, okay. What do, you, what do you give it to? Chapter 33. I just want you to have, um, you know, we, I've given you several maps. But uh, I want you to have a real sense of the geography of, of this passage, okay? And so let's just take a look for a moment at the map, all right? If you look at it, you'll see virtually in the center of the map, you have the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee, and you have the Dead Sea. Almost halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jabbok River. You see that? Yeah. You either do see it or you don't see it. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. to make sure, okay. Because yeah. you're on the east side now. It's your right. Remember, that's east. The east side of the Jordan River. Uh, if, I, if you were to go to Israel with me, I can show you. Most of the time, it's a dry riverbed. But in after the winter and as the spring melting of the snow and spring rains come, this becomes a pretty significant river. But most of the times I've been there, it's just a dried up river area. But anyway, that's where he is, okay? Now, again, he's on the east side, and this is what I want you to see. He is coming, he, he is Jacob and his family, they're coming from Patamaram. They're up in the north, and so they're working their way down along the east side of the Jordan River. Esau, as we'll begin chapter 33, uh, uh, Esau lives in the region of Seir, S-E-I-R, which is another name for Edom. Edom is Hebrew for red. And so that becomes the land of the Edomites. Way down, if, if you were to go with me, I would take everybody down to the southern end of the Dead Sea and we swim in it and do all those things. But I always tell people, look to the south. And when you look to the south, you see the red mountains of Edom. And that, that's what they look like. They are red. When the sun shines on them, they have a red tint to it, very clear. I'm telling you more than you need to know, but I just, this, is, this is where he's coming from. And so they're going to meet right close to the Jabbok River, where he wrestled, he, Jacob, wrestled with God, chapter 32. Okay, now you got the geography of it? Three of you do, the rest of you are playing living statues. So, all right. Does Google Earth, is there any way to go there and actually see any of this stuff? Yeah, if you you use the Google Earth thing, you should be able to, to bring all this stuff up. You absolutely should. There's, a, there's also a link uh, that uh, if you put in a, in a verse, it'll, yes. it'll take you through that, through that uh, map. Yes. Well, I, um, I have on my phone, it's called the Glow Bible, and it has all the translations and everything. But it also has, if, if you're in a particular verse, there's a little arrow at the bottom, you click the arrow and it has if you have maps or archaeology or paintings. It's really cool. Uh, app to have, and it, it brings up the map of the area you're studying right there. So there are a lot of ways, and they, w- they will give the option of a Google-type map. So yeah, you can see all this stuff in Google Map, or, I mean, there are, 
we live in a fantastic age. I know you know this, but the things you can access today for Bible study is beyond anything anyone in the history of biblical studies has ever been able to access. I mean, it's it's just wonderful. What you were referring to, is that a freebie or is there a cost for uh, it? I think it's 30, I bought mine, I bought mine a couple of years ago, about $35 or $32 or something. It's not an exorbitant app at all. And it's a great resource called the Glow Bible. One time, GLO, one time cost. Uh, yeah, get it on your phone or your computer, or whatever. It's really a great tool. Now, let's start the verse. You know, we've already taken 20 minutes. No, no, we have about 10 minutes. All right, the, the introduction. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Now, that immediately links you to chapter 32. First word of chapter 31 is, uh, 32 is and. So we're to make that connection between them. Esau was coming, 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with their children, Rachel and Joseph, last of all. He went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Now, this bowing himself seven times is a typical ancient Near Eastern protocol. This isn't unusual. This is a typical thing to do. Sounds bizarre to you and me in the 21st century. But this is a typical ancient Near Eastern protocol of someone going to someone you perceive as greater than you. And so, I mean, that's what he's doing. Verse 4. Now, the contrast is really remarkable here. What's the first word of verse 4? Then or but. Can be translated, a Hebrew connective can be translated either way. You're to make a contrast between Jacob bowing seven times as he approaches Esau. And Esau running to meet him and embracing him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now when I read verse 4, I reach this conclusion. What a remarkable change God has done in Esau's heart. We don't know anything about Esau. We don't know anything of what happened in these these, these uh uh, years, 20 years, remember that's how long he Jacob was, was with Laban. But that's a remarkable, I mean, what is not in Jacob, uh, sorry, what is not in Esau's heart? Revenge? Vendetta? What did he, what was the last words Jacob heard? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get you, Jacob. And that's why Rebecca says, you got to get out of here, Jacob. So, I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's a really astonishing change in Esau. And Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? The children whom God has graciously given your servant, Jacob said. Now please notice, he refers to himself as Esau's servant. So he approaches him with this bowing, this ancient protocol of approaching someone greater. And he calls himself your servant. Then the servants drew near, verse 6. The servants would be the servants of, of Jacob. They and their children had bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean? Okay, now you, now you break it. So, okay, now the protocols are over. Everybody's greeted. Now Esau asks this question. What do you mean by, this is very hard to translate, all your company that I met. Okay, what does that refer? It takes you back to chapter 32, verses 13 through 21, where Jacob had sent 
a gift of 500 animals to him. Remember that? We read that last week. He sent him a head. Remember that? Tell me you remember that. Okay, three of yeah. you got it. So it's all he's now, now the, the protocols are over, the greetings are over. Now Esau says, in effect, let's paraphrase it, why did you send me all these animals? That's what he means by your, your, this, all this company. Again, it's hard to translate that, but why, why did you send all this to me? That I met, and Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. So now he's referred to himself as servant. He's now referring to Esau as his Lord. So, I mean, I, I mean obviously, this takes you back to the, the, the language at the very beginning of chapter uh, 32. I mean, Jacob was motivated by fear, by concern. He wasn't sure how Esau would respond, how he would greet him. He hears he's got 400 men. He doubts this is a greeting party. So he, I mean, but he's using the language of deference. Do you know what I mean by deference? Using language of deference, he's deferring to him. You, uh, you are greater than I in some ways, and so on. But Esau said, "I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I don't need this." Implying, God has blessed me too. God has blessed me. I don't need these animals. And how does Jacob respond? No, please. And he said, "If I have found favor in your sight, accept my." present, accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted. Now, there's really something going on here. There's a word play, but there's also a reference back to what happened in chapter 32. God changed me. That's why I'm doing this for you. God was gracious to me. I saw God. I met God. And I experienced the grace of God. I want to show grace to you. That's why you see that word, found favor in your sight. You'll see in verse 11, God dealt graciously with me. So what Jacob is trying to do here is say, I have been changed by God. I've seen God. And as, as I have seen your face, I want to be reconciled. And that's the theme of chapter 33. It really is. God's work of grace in both of these men's lives produces reconciliation. And that preaches. Because the reconciliation that God is interested in is only going to be accomplished by his grace. And God's grace is evident in Jacob's life, i.e. chapter 32. God's grace is evident in Esau's life because of how he's acting. We don't know. We don't have any evidence of God doing anything specific in Esau's life, but he obviously did. Or he wouldn't be saying and doing and reacting to what he, what he is here with Jacob. You expect Esau to try to kill Jacob. That's not what he's going to do. So it's just it's an amazing transformation. But it, again, these words and these word plays that are going on in this conversation are all about the grace of God being shown in these two men's lives, which affects reconciliation. Because in the ancient, the ancient Near Eastern world was, and it, that's not difficult to understand that, but the ancient Near Eastern world was a world of vengeance. 
family blood vengeance was everywhere in the clans and families and tribes of the ancient world. That's why today in the 21st century, if you want to understand the Middle East outside of Israel, if you understand the Middle East, you have to think tribe, clan, don't think nation state. The Syrian conflict doesn't make any sense if you think nation states, but if you think tribes and clans, it makes sense. Same way with Iraq. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into anything in the 21st century, but just to, this is really important. So what you see in chapter 33 is an absolute atypical way in which tribal, clannish, ancient Near Eastern world work. How do you explain it? Grace of God. No other way to explain it. Got it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jim, um, what if uh, what if Esau had? And I, I I try to apply that to the current situation. Most of us, I think, have either relatives or people who feel in some ways um, um, maybe revengeful uh, about us or negative toward us. And yet, the, our duty and our role as a Christian is to show, isn't it? I mean, to maybe in common the grace of God that God has given to us, regardless of how they might respond. Mm-hmm. And we can leave that on their doorstep and in their mind as a, as a testimony to the grace of God to us. And and maybe that will break that with yes. someone. Yes. Yeah. I mean that to be uh, to be honest, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew five, six and seven. You are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that follows the eight beatitudes that you see at the beginning. And the rest of that great sermon is just fleshing all that out, what that looks like. You're not agents of vengeance, you're agents of grace and reconciliation. And that is a very easy thing to preach. It's a very easy thing to teach. It's a very easy thing to talk about. It is not easy to live it. It is not easy to live it. We don't live in a, I mean, well, we do a little bit, I guess, but we don't live in a, in a, in a society where vendetta and, and vengeance is the, is the front burner issue. We live in a society where justice is important. Now, I know it's, you know, not everything and everyone is, is acting justly, but justice and the pursuit of justice has replaced a, a culture of vengeance, of vendetta. That's what the ancient world was. To a degree, that's what still is in the Middle East uh, in the world. That should not be the case in a society that honors the name of God. And that's the the heritage of the United States, indeed the heritage of Western Europe is, a society where the culture of vengeance is replaced by a culture of justice. That's breaking down. Why? Because we're getting farther and farther away from God and his virtues, his values, and his moral law. And that's, frankly, and I don't want to get into the politics, all I'm going to say, that is frankly what is frightening to me as I hear some of the stuff being said in this presidential campaign. That is not a healthy thing to be talking about. Some of the stuff that's being framed in this campaign, regardless of which party you're talking about, is not healthy. You're, you're getting us back to a cowboy vendetta, vengeance culture. 
I'm the victim. Stand up for me. I mean, it's, you don't want that kind of thing. That's not, that's not healthy. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. So look, look then at verse uh, 11. It's an extraordinary word used here. Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. <clears throat> I stole your blessing. I stole it from you. I can't restore it, but I can share with you the tangible results of that blessing. Accept it, Esau. Do you understand what he's saying? He's using the word blessing that takes you back to those early years of these two boys coming out of Rebecca's womb and then the conniving and manipulating. Remember all that? I stole it from you. I can't give it back to you. But I can share with you the tangible results of that blessing. Please, Esau, accept it. That's what he's saying to Esau. You get that? You follow that? That's really what he's saying to him. Because why? Why? Because God has dealt graciously with me. There's that key word. And because I have enough. He urged him, and he, that's Esau, took it. Point. Reconciliation has been achieved. They are now reconciled as brothers. How do you explain it? We've seen it. Favor, grace, graciously. God's grace. In Esau's life and in Jacob's life. It's a great, it's a great section. Because the emphasis on this is not Jacob and Esau. The emphasis is on what God has done in their lives, and especially in Jacob's life. And that he, I just think it's, it's amazing in verse 11, that he brings up the word blessing. Because it, it didn't take Esau, he didn't have to think about that. He didn't have to go back and read a bunch of stuff. What does he mean? He knew exactly what he was saying. And so the effect is then reconciliation. Yes, Jim. Was there not the continuing strife? Oh my, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh. Yeah. Not tribal or clannish or whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, you're in the next paragraph, verse twelve through the end of the chapter. There are still some things going on right underneath the surface between these two brothers, as you'll see in a minute. Yeah, and then the the heritage the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau, they will fight until, until King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the Edomites in his invasion of Judah in the 580s. And then Idumea becomes occupied. I mean, it's just another story. So yes, their, their descendants will not be reconciled. Israel and Edom will fight again and again and again and again. And remember when... when um, when Moses is taking the children of Israel, you know, up to get ready to enter the promised land, remember what the Edomites won't let them pass through. No, go around us. Okay, you know, remember? Don't you remember we were reconciled back in chapter thirty-three? No, 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 no. Go around us. So I mean, the Edomites, oh, they become a mortal enemy of Israel, and they, um, yeah, it's it's really there's a. But yes, you're right. Jacob still got a trick up his sleeve or <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't, no, I don't think so, really. 
uh, I mean, for the most part, between him and Esau. You're going to see some, there's still a little bit of distrust between them. You'll see that in verse 12 and following. But they're reconciled as brothers. But their people are not going to be reconciled. I mean, the people that will come from them, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, and then the children of Esau. They, they will not be reconciled. They will, they will be enemies until the Edomites are basically wiped out. Which that comes quite a bit later in history, but you know. So Esau was the father of Edom. That's correct. He's the father of the Edomites. Mm -hmm. Esau means red as Edom. Yeah. Esau produced the reds, Edomites. No. Another question. Yes, please. Why do they continue to call him Jacob if he was named Israel? That's a great question. I think largely we should understand Israel as his covenant name. Yeah. This is two brothers, and that's why they're using his given name. Then? Oh well, I, I probably yeah. It it keeps it keeps taking you back to the initial conflict between these two brothers. Yeah, I think so, because it is Jacob, the conniving one, Esau, the vengeful one. But both now those qualities, or maybe a better word, those character traits are now neutralized because of the grace of God and they're reconciled. So again, I, the theme of chapter 33 is God's grace brings reconciliation. That's the theme of this chapter because there's no other way you can explain it except that. But let's finish the chapter. Um, then Esau said, that you have to, okay, you, you got to remember where they are. Look at the map, the geography of this. Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you, or along with you. Now, what does that mean? What does he say? I'll go into the promised land with you, or come down to Seir with me, come down to Edom with me. Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are frail, the nursing flocks and herds are care for me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. S-E-I-R is another name for Edom. Seir is the ancient name of Edom. So now listen, this is what's really important. Esau is saying, I want you to come down to my home with me. And then you can go back up to your home. Jacob is saying, uh... Esau, I don't know. That's going to be awful hard on my family and my flocks. You go on ahead, and then I'll come down to visit you. This is a hundred-mile journey. To go across into the Promised Land is five miles. It's quite a difference. So, I mean, what you see, and this is what is really, really difficult to figure out what exactly is going on here. But Jacob is pushing back on this idea. I know you want to be hospitable. I think that's what's in your mind, Esau. I know you would like me to come down and visit you. Now, I know maybe. I think that's what's going on. But, you know, Esau, you go on ahead. We'll come down and visit you later. That's really what Jacob's saying. Why? Well, the kids are tired. Our flocks to make a 100-mile trip. You know, it's like, you know, when your kids are little. You're on a long drive. That isn't good. We used to drive to Pennsylvania with our two kids. Oh, my goodness. 
That's a 1,500-mile truck. Well, Jacob's just saying, okay. So Esau said, let me leave with you some people who are with me. He, that's Jacob, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. That is, Jacob said, let me find favor. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Remember, Seir is an ancient name for Edom. So Esau goes home. Where does Jacob go? Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. Now that's right in the center of your map. He's still on the east side of the Jordan River. So he now goes to Sukkot. He doesn't follow Esau. He goes down to the west. And the text tells us he built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Sukkot is a Hebrew word that just means booths. But that's really important. Because a little bit later, when they get, when, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Israel and God establishes the feast, he's going to establish the feast of Sukkot, the feast of booths, where they remember they're wandering in the wilderness. Same exact Hebrew word. So what has Jacob done? Does Jacob not trust Esau? Or does he really, really mean that's a long journey for the kids and the flocks? We're just going to go west, right across the Jordan. So the reconciliation is there. But there still seems to be some lack of trust, some doubt. Esau, no, we'll see you later. We're going across the Jordan. No, it's still you're still on the east side of the Jordan. There's a little dot there that you can maybe see. Is is that in the plain of Aram over there? Then Aram or whatever it's called uh, on the west side. No, we're uh, Sukkot. We're still Jacob and his family are still on the east side of the Jordan River. You know the Jordan. They're still here's the Jordan. They're still on the east side. They haven't yet crossed into the promised. They're about to, but they haven't yet crossed into the promised land. Okay, you with me? I'm, okay. Well, he's, he's on his way over. To he's on the way. Yeah, that's where he's going to. Where the plane is. It, the, 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 it refers to Padam. Oh, Padam Aram. That's that's way Padam Aram was Rebecca's hometown, up here. It's, it's way up here. Okay. So they've been, you know, that's where he had been with Laban for 20 years. Oh, all right. So now so. it's just say from it. He's just, he's been moving his family and everybody down along the east side of, of the Jordan. Okay? Is so I'm saying he came from that original site all the way back to the city of Shechem. That's where he's, yeah, he's going to so cross. He's returning home. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So then verse 16, and by the way, again, from Sukkot, or, or from where they were at Mahanaim, where they met um, Esau and all that, so it's about four miles. Where going down to Eden would be over 100 miles. So obviously, just telling us. So verse 18, this is a very important, very important sentence. And Jacob came safely, or some translations have peacefully, to the city of Shechem. Now see that on your map. That means he's going to cross the Jordan River with his family. Now, does Shechem ring a bell to you? Is that, do you recall that? 
That was where Abraham built his first altar to God. That's early in, in when, when Abraham, remember Genesis 12, he's called out of, of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, called out of Mesopotamia, and he obeys and starts his trek and so on. And then he comes into the promised land, comes into the land, and he stops at Shechem, and there he builds an altar to God. So Shechem is, is playing an important role in the life of the patriarchs. So he goes to Shechem on his way, which is in the land of Canaan. That's really important. It's reminding us he's now in the promised land. Because remember, the land of Canaan, inhabited by Canaanites, is the land God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. Remember back chapter 28, when, when Jacob is starting his trek up to Patamaran, he stops at Bethel and sees the ladder. Remember that? And God reminds him, I am going to give you all this land. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, to the west. I'm going to give you all this. So now the text is reminding us Jacob is back in the land that God had promised him, had promised Isaac his father, that had promised Abraham his grandfather. On his way from Padamari, he camped before the city. Okay? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's just, it, you read that verse, oh, okay, it's Atlantic. No, 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 stop for a minute. Think of this in Atlantic. This is back in the land God had promised him. You're talking about Sukkoth? No, no, Shechem. Sukkoth, he's still on the east side of the Jordan. Shechem is on the west side. Look at the map. You can see it, okay? So he's just crossed the Jordan River. The text doesn't tell us he crossed, just, but because he's going from Sukkot to Shechem, we know he's now in the Promised Land. How far of a trip is it? Oh, um, probably about 11, 12 miles. So why did he go to Sukkot and, and establish himself there for a while? I mean, I didn't... Well, I, at, one, at one level, I don't know uh, specifically. Um, you know, obviously they had been on a long trek, and so maybe it's a stop and temporarily. I, I don't know. It is usually understood, though, because of the use of the word Sukkot, which is booze, which anticipates the feast of booze, which celebrates several things in ancient in Israel's history. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't. The, the Bible doesn't tell us why he did it that way. I don't know, but it's just. It's perhaps, I mean, they've been on a long journey and so on to stop before they make that journey across the Jordan because to take all of his flocks and all of his children and his servants across the Jordan. The Bible doesn't explain it, how long, but that, Jordan, that's an arduous journey. So maybe there was a time of year? That's well, the, the worst time to cross the Jordan is in the spring because that's when all the snow and everything Mount to Hermon and all that's melting and it's, it's causing a lot of water to come down. Um, I don't believe that we got, I don't think we got any markers of the time of the year when they're moving here. I, I don't think it told us that. I think, Ed, we would have to infer, though, this probably is not in the spring. It would be almost impossible for them to cross the Jordan in the springtime. The Jordan in the springtime, like March, April, is a raging. Uh, I mean, if you go down, as you're approaching the Dead Sea, this has happened to me a couple of times. You go down to the Dead Sea, those rains and the raging of Jordan, it absolutely floods out and, and just huge mudslides cover the whole road. They have to bring huge road graders in to clear the road. It's like in a snowstorm. That's what they do in spring. 
because the river is rising and the rains are, that's the rainy season. I mean, it's, it's terrible. As a matter of fact, last time I was there, yeah, in, in October, they had just had a tremendous rainstorm and it washed out that key road that takes you down to the Dead Sea. And we saw road graders, they were cleaning the road. I mean, it's just so, I, I'm assuming they're not crossing the Jordan at that time. But I don't know that for sure. Possibly, uh, Jacob's observation that the uh, blocks were stressed and, and everybody was tired. From the well, that's what I mean. I, I, I think it probably it's a time of rest, yeah. which is the booze are. But I mean, that's a great question, but I just don't know the answer. Plus, he was emotionally oh, relieved. Absolutely. And, uh, plus, physically. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's a time of rest and refreshment before that arduous uh, journey across the Jordan. Because even when it's low, I mean, it's still, you know, you're taking hundreds and hundreds of animals, all your children and servants. It's just, you don't do that in an hour. Like you and I crossed the plat in a few minutes. <laughs> but think about we had to walk across the plat and take children and yeah. all our animals. You know, although the plat's a narrow, I mean, a, a shallow river. I looked at this. Uh, normally, cattle will travel about two miles an hour, and people, just normal walking, will travel about three miles an hour. Mm. If you have children, slows you down. Yes, mm. sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one other question: Is this where we're going to find um, Jacob staying in Shechem until Joseph is sold into Egypt? He's going to go up to Bethel. He's going to go up to Bethel, which isn't that far. And then you're going to start, then we'll start with a few more things have to happen before we start to the Joseph story. Yeah, it, we're almost at Joseph, which is the rest of the book. But there are a couple of other things that have to occur. Now, we're not done with chapter 34 yet. I want you to notice verse 19. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. Remember, Shechem is a Canaanite city. Right? I mean, that, to utter, for me to utter a sentence like that, you understand what that means, don't you? Because remember, the children of Israel, the children, they don't inhabit anything yet. That doesn't happen until the conquest under Joshua. So Shechem is a Canaanite city. And it tells us in verse 19, the sons of Hamor, he's a key person in that city. And one of, the, one of his sons is named Shechem. And Jacob buys a piece of land from him. It tells us he bought for 100 pieces of money. Uh, we, we really don't know. That Hebrew word there, we don't know what the currency or the, we don't know. It doesn't tell us, but it's just a Hebrew word. So pieces of money, a piece of land in which he pitched his tent. Now that should echo back a little bit to Abraham. Abraham bought at Machpelah from the Hittites. Now listen, this is important. Jacob is staking his claim. This is my land. I'm going to buy it. So you now have another patriarch buying land in Canaan. And so what does Jacob do? Verse 20. He erects an altar. And he calls it El Elohe Israel. That's long, but El Elohe Israel is Hebrew for the God of Israel. So he's worshiping on land that he purchased, 
from a Canaanite, his God, who changed his name to the covenant name Israel. Jacob is staking his claim in Canaan, just like his grandfather, excuse me, Abraham had done. And he names it, he worships. The altar means he's worshiping. And he calls the place El Elohe Israel, the God of Israel. My God, the God of Israel. That's just, this is real. Don't, don't pass over this quickly. This is a very, very important segment. He is now staking his claim in the land God promised him. Tiny little piece isn't big. I mean, it's not anything significant. But he purchased it. It's his, just like Abraham purchased Machpelah, when he, the burial place for Sarah and all that stuff. Okay? It's 12.30. We did one chapter today. We have 15 minutes to get into 34, which the whole thing shifts with 34. Mm-hmm. Good. I uh, just kind of wondered about chapter 17. I mean, chapter what? 17. Chapter yeah. 17? Oh, oh, verse 7. Okay, I, was, I mean, I was going to go back to chapter 17 with you. Okay, sure, go ahead. Jacob turned into Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And then it doesn't say how long he was there, but no. then he goes across the river to sure. Shechem. Right. Correct? Right. Now, when, when... I just wondered why it must have been some length of time that he stayed there. Not that that's important. No, well, but you're right. I mean, it, it, I mean it's, it's probably not just a day. He's staying there for a period of time. Uh, yes, but, and, and when you read the word house, I mean, don't think of the huge house you live in. It has multi-stories, you know, 500,000 square feet. I'm just kidding you. Don't think of it that way. That's why the word is like a booth. It's a temporary shelter. That's all he's doing. But it's it, what is important is the next section, when he crosses into the he's in the promised land, and he buys land. Right. Now, this isn't just a booth. He's right. by, I'm staking my claim. Yeah. And he's going to move to Bethel, which he promised God he would do in chapter 28. Yeah. Thank you. you bet, and that's good. Now, let's start chapter 34, which, what a, what a distinct contrast in chapters. But... Um, Let's review a couple of things. When he was, that is Jacob, when Jacob is with Laban to both Leah and Rachel, he has 11 sons and one daughter, and that daughter is Dinah. Remember that? Now, Benjamin hasn't been born yet. The, the talk, we'll, we'll read about him in just a little bit. So now, this is one of Leah's children. Remember, um, Jacob has two wives and then the servants of the two wives, so you've got... Four women, and they all give him different children. But anyway, so it's just reminds us, Leah is the daughter, excuse me, Dinah is the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. Now, what we see here is they're in Shechem. Jacob put his stake down in Shechem. And now Dinah, she went out to see the women of the land. Now, to be blunt, she probably shouldn't have done that. But the women of the land would mean what? She's out fraternizing with Canaanites. Now that's all it's saying. So she just she goes out. She goes out from the home and the, the, the clan of Jacob, 
and she goes out among the Canaanites. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, we were introduced to him in verse 19 of the previous chapter. This is the son of Hamor. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, what did he do? He seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. What one word captures what Shechem did? He raped her. That's what it, That's the word. He raped her. This isn't voluntary. This isn't consensual on her part. She's raped. And the text adds that humiliates her. Obviously, that would be the result. So, I mean, this is a horrible situation. A Canaanite prince has just raped one of the children of Jacob. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Again, that's ancient Near Eastern practice. These are always arranged marriages. The father arranged the marriage of the son. The father arranged the marriage. So what's he saying? Dad, I want her. I don't know if he told her he raped her. I don't know. But Jacob, uh, sorry, Shechem wants this girl. Now, I want you to see the contrast between Jacob and the brothers of Dinah. A very clear contrast here. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, that he would be Shechem, son of Hamor. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. What do you see? A passive, patriarchal leader. Now, do you understand that? Do you understand? Here's Jacob. He's the patriarch. He's the head of the clan. His daughter's just been raped. He doesn't do anything. I'll wait till the boys come back. And Tamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men, these were meaning the sons, were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. The rape of Dinah by Shechem is a clear violation of moral law. What the text is saying. So Jacob responds passively. The brothers respond with indignant, righteous anger. This violates the moral law of God. And that's, that's why you're not going to see anything about Jacob till the story's all over. Jacob's the leader. Jacob's head of the clan. Now, I'm not saying Jacob should have risen up and killed Shechem at this point, but Jacob doesn't do anything. And he wets Hamor come and talk. Now, look, my boy would really like your, your daughter. Can we arrange all this? And so this is what he proposes. Verse 8. The soul of my son Shechem belongs for your daughter, and the your there is plural, not singular. Please give her to him to be his wife. Verse 9. Now notice this. He extends it. Make 
marriages with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Now you do understand what Hamor, the Hivite, the Canaanite is saying. Let's make this marriage between Dinah and Shechem a model of how we're going to relate to each other. All you Jews intermarried with us Canaanites and we'll live happily ever after. Amen? I mean, do you, you want, I hope you're getting it. I hope you understand yeah. what's going on. One, you have the rape of Dinah, which is an egregious, horrible act. But now you have Jacob being passive, the boys indignant, and Hamor comes at, look, let's use this as a stepping stone for a tremendous peaceful coexistence. Let's intermarry. Let's share property. And we'll live happily ever after. A little play on words, but you check him. Is the name of the son. Check. It's both the name of the community, the town, and the name of the son of the ruler of the right. town. And did this rape take place in the town of Shechem? Well, yes, correct. Dinah had gone out from the protective security of the clan. She had gone out and is fraternizing with Canaanite women. But they're still basically near Shechem. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, you, you, you see, we've gone now from rape to intermarriage. And what are they going to do? Where did I leave off? Verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Verse 12, very important verse. Ask me for as great a bride price, dowry, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Which tells you again something about the ancient Near Eastern world. Love never preceded marriage. Love followed marriage. For the most part. And you can see Dinah, Dinah doesn't have any role in this, does she? I mean, she's just sitting back. She's been raped. And now the men are trying to decide what they're going to do. You know, it's just, so you have, you have three dynamics going on. Here. One, the passivity of Jacob. Two, the righteous indignation of the boys, the brothers. And now, thirdly, this proposal from Hamor and Shechem. Let's intermarry. Let's use this as a stepping stone to peaceful coexistence among our peoples. We welcome you, Jews. We welcome you, Israelites. We welcome you as a clan. Let's you, we can all, we can just have a great, be happily ever after type people. Yeah, and it's not just the father that's trying to sell this idea, it's Shechem. Is that's sick. correct, because yeah. Shechem wants dying. That's Shechem right. Yeah, I mean, this is really, yeah, there's a dynamic here that's really quite significant. Now, the boys, yeah, go ahead, yeah, I'm sorry. Is, is it also possible that Shechem, the son, is fully aware of what he's done and he's, he's kind of trying to deal for his life? Possibly. That's a that's a really good comment. Possibly. And that may be what's in back of Hamor because these boys, he sees the passivity of Jacob, but these boys 
what are they going to do? Because the vengeance culture that we talked about earlier, I mean, that's right. I mean, there's possibly, this is a whole set of proposals to overcome. The, I mean, we got, what? We, got, uh, we got Jacob and Hamor negotiating, and the boys aren't part of the negotiation. No, they're, no, they're no. Check him, toss it in, and he, he's sort of Yeah, to whatever it's going to cost, I'll pay it. So now the boys come up with an idea. I don't know if we get this done, but we'll start. The sons of Jacob, now remember who they are. These are the boys. They've been out in the field when she was raped. They heard about it. They run back. They see their father not doing anything. Because again, this is not Jacob. This is the boys. Answer Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. ESV translates that Hebrew word, M-I-R-M-A-H is the Hebrew word, deceitfully. Some translations have treacherously. They hatch a plan. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said, we cannot do this thing, give our sister, to one who is in uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Now, in a sense, that's true. But there's a lot more going on here. Let's review. What is the importance of circumcision to the children of Israel? Sets them apart. It's the sign of what covenant? Uh, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So they're bringing up circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So the inference is, you guys aren't circumcised, which they were not. We are. We're of the covenant people of God. Therefore, for us to even consider your request, you have to be circumcised. Now, that is not necessarily true, but it certainly is partially true. We're the covenant people of Yahweh. You're not. And you want our sister? It defiles and disgraces us to even consider that. You're uncircumcised. Verse 15. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then... We will give our daughters to you. So you have verse 16, 15, the condition. Verse 16, the result. Get every male person in the city of Shechem circumcised. All you Canaanites get circumcised. Then we'll consider your idea of peaceful coexistence, where we intermarry and just have a great life together. Verse 17. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. He's the key son. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city. Now, that's just remind you, the ancient world, all cities had walls around them. The main gate entered into the city. It was a big gatehouse. That's where all the elders and all the leaders meet. So Shechem and Hamor come to this, all the elders, and say, now look, these men, verse 21, these men are at 
peace with us. I'm sorry, I just was thinking bells are ringing. Is the Lord coming? What's going on? These men are at peace with us. To whom are they referring men? The Israelites. At peace with us. Now what you should do is you should take that opening phrase in verse 21 and take it all the way back to the word deceitful in verse 13. It worked. These Canaanites are deceived. They're at peace with us. They want peace with us. They want to live with us. They want to dwell in the land. They want to trade. The land is large enough for them. Let us give their daughters as wives and let them give their, uh, them our daughters. There's only one condition, verse 22. On this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. And every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. They are now deceived. They buy it. Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who out of the gate of his city. Now, I don't have to explain to you what circumcision is. That happened to a little boy. It's hard. When my son was circumcised, I remember that. It was a day or two, it was really hard. You're an adult male, and you're circumcised. That will incapacitate you. It's going to be hard for you to function for a couple of days. So now, now, we understand why the text said deceitfully. Because what are the sons of Jacob going to do? They're going to wipe out this city. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, <laughs> that doesn't have to be explained, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, the two blood brothers of Dinah, took their swords came against the city while it fell secure and killed all the males. Verse 26, they killed Hamor, his son Shechem, with the sword, took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they defiled their sister. They took all their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever's in the city in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. My goodness. The scene of this chapter is defilement, deception, vengeance, not justice. The theme of this chapter is defilement. Dinah was defiled. She was raped. Deception and vengeance, not justice. <sighs> Come back next week to see how Jacob responds to this. I like to leave the class hanging so that you yeah. want to come back.
But I have several more things to say. It's almost 10 of I, I cannot go any further, so I hope that's all right. Even if it isn't all right, <laughs> we have to do. But um, this is really it's really an important chapter for uh, what's happened and what's going to happen, so I want to comment on that. But we'll talk about Jacob. So very important section, so thank you. It's a good class, good, good questions too. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get out of here. Lord, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to study the Word of God together. And in the patriarchal narratives of Genesis, we see the character traits. We see amazing demonstrations of your grace. And we also see how you are continuing to work out the line that will eventually produce the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you do in all of these genealogical lines, it's warts and all. It's the magnificence of your grace. Jacob doesn't deserve what you have blessed him with, but you continue to bless him. But we also see the ways in which the character traits of Jacob are manifested in some of his children. The deceptive, conniving, vengeful sons of Jacob. They're evidencing the very character traits of their father. We want to make some more comments about that, but it also is just an example, again, Lord, of your grace. The incredible grace of God is all over these narratives in uh, the book of Genesis. So, Lord, I just pray that you'll help us as we go from this place. The takeaway from, from our class this morning, among other things, is that your grace affects reconciliation, and your grace should always lead to a passion for righteousness and justice. But it doesn't always work out the way. In, at least in the immediate um, uh, future. That's certainly the case with Jacob's boys. So, Lord, we just pray that you'll help us as we go our separate ways to represent you, to represent you well, to represent your gracious and magnanimous dealings with people. May we manifest that in our dealings with people. Be men of grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.